So Nick, I've noticed in my clinic that for a lot of the women that come and see me, I am their only doctor. Yeah, you know, and I think one of the hardest things about that, Faye, is that it's really hard as an OBGYN just not having been in the primary care sphere for a couple of years now to know where to reach out and look for, like, what do I do to do this screening or that screening? Yeah, exactly. Like, I completely have forgotten when to screen people for, you know, their lipid panel, when to get their A1C, when do they get the colonoscopies. But the good thing is this is all there on the OBG Project. If you head on over to the OBG Project's website, they have a special tab entitled Primary Care that actually has a lot of updates regarding things like treating type 2 diabetes, screening for things like abdominal aortic aneurysm and colonoscopy, lipid therapies, all the stuff that was really, really useful to you once upon a time and you probably forgot, but maybe you need once again. And while I still tell all my patients that they definitely need a primary care doctor and not just an OBGYN, this way at least you're able to kind of hold them over until they do find that PCP. The OBG Project has a product called OBG First that's free for chief residents for one whole year. If you head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com, check out the sidebar and you as a chief resident can get access to all of their stuff for absolutely free. But even if you're not a chief resident, check out the OBG Project look at the resources they have on the website, and get better in your clinic. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. So today we're going to touch back into the world of obstetrics and we're going to talk about group B strep, specifically the screening and then prevention of newborn disease. Faye, what are our learning objectives for today? So today we are going to review the importance of group B strep with respect to morbidity and mortality in newborns and therefore the importance of preventing group B strep. We're also going to highlight standard screening recommendations for GBS as well as the rationale for screening or giving prophylactic maternal treatment in special circumstances. And then we're going to become familiar with the antibiotics for GBS prophylaxis and we're also going to talk briefly about penicillin allergy screening because so many of our patients come in and say that they can't have penicillin. They sure do. All right, Nick, so start us off. Um, talk to me a little bit about what group B strep is. Why do we care about it? Yeah, so group B strep is also known as Streptococcus agalactiae, or GBS is probably the way that we all talk about it. Um, but it's a common flora of the vagina and rectum of women, and it has a prevalence of colonization in women somewhere between 10 and 30% of the population. Generally, GBS is asymptomatic. It's a commensal organism, um, but it can be pathogenic in certain circumstances causing things like UTI, endometritis, um, and in older studies has actually been associated with both preterm labor and stillbirth. In newborns, there are two types of GBS-related disease that we'll touch on today. 
One is late onset disease. So late onset disease in newborns occurs between seven days and two to three months after birth and is characterized by sepsis, is more commonly associated with meningitis, and also associated with organ and soft tissue infection. This type of disease, the late onset disease, is more commonly acquired by horizontal transmission from the mother, um, though it can also be acquired from hospital sources or individuals in the community. You may have heard of cases of late onset GBS kind of in the media recently associated with placental ingestion that have had improper processing. Um, you know, you also hear periodically about group B strep happening a month or two postpartum. Um, again, this is not necessarily, though, what we're interested in as obstetricians. This is not disease that we're necessarily preventing, I guess, other than if you're prescribing placenta encapsulation, then you should think about that a little bit more. But um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on late onset disease today other than just this brief note. Really where our money is is an early onset disease. Faye, what is early onset disease? So early onset disease is just defined as group B strep sepsis or group B strep related disease that presents within the first seven days of birth. This can occur via vertical transmission or via aspiration by the fetus or the neonate. And usually the disease will manifest itself within the first 12 to 48 hours after birth. It's characterized by sepsis, pneumonia, and less commonly meningitis. However, the reason we care about it is because it is the most common cause of early onset neonatal sepsis. 72% of cases of early onset disease occur in term newborns, uh, but the mortality is much higher in premature infants, 19.2% mortality in premature infants versus 2.1% mortality for babies at term. So therefore, premature infants are much more likely to require higher levels of intensive care and intervention if they have been exposed to group B strep. So when we're treating group B strep in labor, this is what we are primarily trying to prevent. Um, so Nick, talk to me a little bit more about risk factors for group B strep early onset disease. I think we talked a little bit about one of those, which is being premature, but what are the other ones? Yeah, so the other risk factors are things that we probably would generally think of already. So again, along with prematurity, kind of goes very low birth weight, um, which is a separate risk factor though. Prolonged rupture of membranes greater than 18 hours is another risk factor. Intraamniotic infection, namely chorioamnionitis and endometritis, is another risk factor. Um, demographically, young maternal age and black race also have been associated with group B strep early onset disease. And then heavy vaginal rectal colonization or group B strep bacteria, which is just essentially a proxy for heavy colonization, is also a risk factor. Um, and then finally, just like everything else in obstetrics, a previous history of a newborn affected by group B strep early onset disease puts mother of a newborn at risk for the same thing again. All of these risk factors are important to remember. We're going to come back to them later when we talk about treatment, so try and file those risk factors away in your minds now. Um, but Faye, before we can go on to treatment, though, we've got to talk about screening recommendations. Yes. So screening in the United States is universal for group B strep. This means that it is the standard of care during prenatal care. You need to be screening everybody. 
ACOG has actually changed its recommendation a little bit just in the last year about universal screening for vaginal and rectal colonization, and they recommend screening now between 36 weeks to 37 and 6, which I think, Nick, when you and I were interns, we were screening everybody at 35 weeks, which was the previous recommendation. Yep, exactly. Um, And this is because these results are considered valid for five weeks. So the majority of women will be captured by screening at 36 weeks because we're assuming that most women will likely deliver in the term period, or if they were to go into the late term period, they would be induced at 41 weeks. This is also recommended for women who are planning to deliver by cesarean section. And you might ask, well, why would you screen somebody for group B strep if the baby is not coming through the vaginal canal? Treatment for GBS, true, does not need to occur for someone who has a C-section that occurs before labor onset. But if the patient does ultimately labor unexpectedly, then having that screening performed will allow for appropriate care planning and treatment if it's indicated for both the mom and the baby. We'll also touch a little bit more about group B strep bacteria. If group B strep bacteria is present in any amount at any time during the pregnancy, then this is considered a positive result. Basically, it's a proxy for heavy colonization, and so you don't need to repeat screen these women. If asymptomatic bacteria for GBS is present at greater than 10 to the 5th colony-forming units per milliliter, then treatment should be considered as you would for any other form of asymptomatic bacteria. If it is less than 10 to the 5th colony-forming units per mil, then there's no correlation between treatment of this lower-level bacteria and improved maternal or neonatal outcomes. However, it should be still noted that this patient would be considered GBS positive. Talk to me a little bit about screening for not necessarily these low-risk women, but what about other people that you would consider screening for? And and then also, how do we screen? Yeah, so kind of the last group that we'd consider, so we talked about the universal screening at first, saying, you know, at 36 to 37 and 6, we should get everybody. But some people are going to deliver before 36 weeks. So folks who come in with preterm labor and premature pre-labor rupture of membranes, or PPROM. In the case of prematurity, treatment should begin while awaiting screening results. And again, we're going to touch on treatment a little bit more in a few minutes, so hold tight on that. But just remember, again, prematurity means treatment. If the screen becomes positive and preterm labor resolves, the colonization should be considered positive for the remainder of the pregnancy. So say you have somebody who comes in at 31 weeks, preterm labor eval, preterm labor arrests, okay, they're hanging out. If they're positive on their GBS screen, they should be considered GBS positive for the rest of the pregnancy. You do not need to get repeat screening on that patient. However, if we take that same patient who went into preterm labor at 31 weeks and it stopped and their screen was negative, she should be rescreened after five weeks or at 36 weeks in this case um, to again check for colonization if it has become positive in the last five weeks. Remember that lab test is only valid for five weeks. Um, Talking about the lab test itself, the gold standard for screening is that vaginal rectal culture. So again, whether a healthcare provider performs it or whether a patient is instructed to perform it herself, they've been validated in both ways and found to be valid as long as you're sampling both the vagina and the rectum. Recently, though, nucleic acid amplification tests, or NAATs, have also demonstrated promise in obtaining accurate and quick results for GBS screening. 
But the most accurate tests of this NAAT category that perform similar to the gold standard of culture do require actually some culture time prior to doing the test, meaning that you can't get results generally with the best performing tests before about 18 to 24 hours after you do the screening. There are some tests that are available on the market that offer screening results within a shorter period of time, like on the order of like four to six hours, but these often have lower accuracy and so are not recommended. The other downside of nucleic acid amplification tests are that they don't have the ability to test antibiotic resistance, which is important in the case of a patient with a known high-risk penicillin allergy. So if your patient does have a known penicillin allergy, the laboratory needs to be alerted with that sample so that way sensitivity testing on the culture can be performed. Again, we're going to review treatment and antibiotic choices shortly, so hold tight. But again, all of this is going to come back at the end of the podcast. So, Faye, um, I guess one thing that we did mention earlier were those risk factors. And one of the things that we can think about are risk factors with deciding to treat people. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So you had talked about the fact that, unfortunately, the test does take some time to come back. And when a woman comes in in rip-roaring preterm labor, she may not have 18 or 24 hours before she delivers her baby. Hmm. And so these women should be treated, first of all, if they're preterm, um, they should just be treated without having that result back. But if this person is coming in term and you don't know their group B strep status, then you should do risk factor-based screening, which then may help you decide whether or not to give treatment. So if any of the following risk factors are present, treatment should be pursued. And this would be one, prematurity or PPROM less than 36 weeks and six days. Two, if they have a history of a prior newborn affected by group B strep disease. Three, amniotic membrane rupture greater than 18 hours duration. Four, presence of intrapartum fever greater than 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius. And last of all, if there's known GBS positive results in a previous pregnancy. And for this, you can engage in a shared decision making with your patient about this clinical scenario. All right, Nick. So I think we've talked as much as we can about group B strep screening and when to treat. So let's dive into actual treatment. What type of antibiotics are we giving people? All right. So the gold standard, as I hope everybody who's at least gotten to residency position knows, the gold standard again for the treatment of GBS colonization intrapartum for the reduction of risk to neonates for early onset GBS disease is penicillin G. Penicillin G is dosed at a loading dose of 5 million units and then 2.5 to 3 million units IV every four hours until delivery. If penicillin G is not available at your institution, ampicillin is an acceptable alternative with a loading dose of 2 grams IV, followed by 1 gram IV every 4 hours. Penicillin is preferred, though, as it has a narrower, more targeted spectrum of activity and a lower likelihood of inducing resistance in other organisms. So for this reason, identification and history of the penicillin allergy is super important to flush out in prenatal care. Faye, I didn't realize before reading for this topic today, but 80 to 90% of people with a reported penicillin allergy are not truly allergic. So again, it's really important to try and flush this out. So again, high-risk symptoms of a penicillin allergy when taking a history include things like a pruritic rash, urticaria or hives, immediate flushing after administration of the drug, angioedema, respiratory distress, anaphylaxis, um, and this could be after penicillin or cephalosporin administration. Uh, these are all considered high risk for a true allergy. 
But even with high-risk persons or if the history is not clear, if penicillin allergy testing has never been performed on that patient, it is recommended actually by ACOG and by the American Academy of Allergy and Immunology to perform this testing, even in pregnancy. That is so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I did not know that. Crazy, actually, there have been studies done about like feasibility of doing penicillin allergy testing in like an OB triage area just to try and make it available to reduce the risk of what we're going to talk about next, which is resistance of non-penicillin antibiotics. If you do elicit a penicillin allergy, try and refer your patients in to get penicillin allergy testing um, because you could potentially help things on a public health sphere. But Faye, let's say, you know, kind of in our experience, unfortunately, not a lot of people do get that penicillin allergy testing. So we kind of are stuck again with like a risk-based screening. What do you know about that? When someone has a penicillin allergy and that testing hasn't been performed, you should classify their allergy as either low versus high risk based on the symptoms that you just talked about. So if the patient is not high risk, they don't have that pruritic rash, hives, angioedema, respiratory distress, anaphylaxis, they're considered low risk. And this means that they can be given a first-generation cephalosporin, such as cefazolin, because there's a very low cross-reactivity with penicillin for a first-generation cephalosporin, and group B strep is highly susceptible to it. This should be dosed at 2 grams IV loading dose followed by 1 gram IV every 8 hours until delivery. Now, if the patient is high risk, so they do have all of those things that happen to them when they are given penicillin, or they have an unknown risk with no allergy testing, susceptibility testing should be performed by the laboratory with the screening. So you get a culture and the lab will perform susceptibility for that particular species of group B strep. The options for therapy will include clindamycin or vancomycin. Clindamycin should only be used if the culture results have shown susceptibility, as there is resistance to clindamycin in group B strep populations at approximately 20%. So dosing would be 900 milligrams every eight hours until delivery. One note about this is that there is an antibiotic, erythromycin, which was once recommended to treat group B strep, but it is no longer recommended because the resistance of group B strep to this antibiotic is approximately 50%. That last antibiotic is vancomycin. This has good activity against group B strep. However, there is a high risk in creating resistant organisms like VRE with widespread use, and so every effort should be made to rule out a penicillin allergy and also to look at susceptibility testing if there is a true allergy before we use it. The dosing for vancomycin is 20 milligrams per kg IV every eight hours with a maximum of two grams per single dose. All right, Nick, so let's say we've selected our appropriate antibiotics and this woman comes in, we're inducing her, for example, and I do want her to deliver quickly, but how long should I wait before, um, you know, I try and get her into labor or how long should I give her antibiotics before I deliver her? Yeah, it's a really good question, Faye. So all antibiotics actually used for group B strep prophylaxis are time-dependent with respect to their ability to lower a microbial load. Most of the studies on this have been done on penicillin or ampicillin prophylaxis. And for these antibiotics, it's about four or more hours of prophylaxis that is preferable, though two hours of time has been shown to reduce group B strep count and decrease the rate of neonatal sepsis. That said, obstetric intervention should not be delayed solely to provide the four hours of antibiotic administration when that obstetric intervention is indicated. So, you know, some of these things might include 
like pit administration, rupture of membranes, or moving on to cesarean. Again, you shouldn't wait for that four hours of antibiotics if you're in the middle of a D-cell and you need to resuscitate. Again, sometimes you just gotta get things moving. You know, clinical situations will vary. If the interventions are not immediately indicated, you should weigh the risks and benefits of getting that increased antibiotic exposure to reduce group B strep exposure versus the need for the intervention immediately. Um, there are lots of other obstetric and labor interventions that actually have been studied, Faye, um, in terms of what they do with respect to the incidence of group B strep sepsis. Yes. So... These interventions have not been shown to increase incidence of GBS sepsis. However, there is limited data. So these things include things like mechanical cervical dilation, so using your Foley balloon, uh, artificial rupture of membranes, use of an IUPC or an FSE, or water immersion in the first stage of labor. There is some data on doing multiple vaginal exams and the incidence of GBS early onset disease, though that data is mixed and limited. It doesn't need to be said that if you feel like you need to do a vaginal exam on someone who is in labor who is group B strep positive because it's clinically indicated, you should still do it. All right, Faye, I think that covers a lot of group B strep. Let's try and summarize. Sure. So we started off first by talking about exactly what group B strep is and also the different types of GBS-related disease. So group B strep is Streptococcus agalactiae, which is a common flora of the vagina and rectum of women. Generally, it's asymptomatic. However, in newborns, it can cause two types of disease, late-onset disease, which occurs after seven days into two to three months after birth, which we don't really talk about here, um, and also early-onset disease, which is what we care about, which is present within the first seven days of birth. This can lead to sepsis, pneumonia, and less commonly, meningitis, which is why we care about preventing these things. Risk factors for group B strep include things like gestational age less than 37 weeks, low birth weight, prolonged rupture of membranes, meaning more than 18 hours, an intraamniotic infection, um, heavy vaginal or rectal colonization of GBS, previous newborn affected by group B strep early onset disease, and demographically, a young maternal age and black race. We then talked about screening recommendations for group B strep, noting that in the United States, group B strep screening should be universal as a standard part of prenatal care occurring between 36 and 0 to 37 and 6 weeks of gestational age. Results of a group B strep screen are considered valid for 5 weeks, thus meaning that by screening at 36 weeks, we capture the majority of women who will deliver by 41 weeks if they deliver at term. This is also recommended still for women planning to deliver by cesarean in the events that they do end up laboring unintentionally. Group B strep bacteria can substitute as a screen if it is present in any amount because that is a proxy for heavy vaginal rectal colonization. Treatment for asymptomatic bacteria of GBS should only be performed if it's at greater than 10 to the 5th colony forming units per ml. Screening can also occur at the time of admission for preterm labor and pre labor premature rupture of membranes, though treatment should begin in these scenarios. The gold standard for screening is through a vaginal rectal culture. However, these do take time, and so there is a more rapid test using the nucleic acid amplification testing, though for the most accurate results, these still take time between 18 to 24 hours. However, this does not mean that you should not treat in women who have risk factors based on their previous screening without those results. 
Those risk factors include prematurity or PPROM, meaning less than 36 weeks and six days, a history of a prior newborn affected by group B strep disease, amniotic membrane rupture greater than 18 hours, presence of intrapartum fever greater than 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and if there is known GBS positive results in a previous pregnancy. And this one in particular, um, you may have to discuss with your patient and come to a shared decision um, based on the clinical scenario. Finally, with respect to intrapartum treatment, we marked that the gold standard for treatment of group B strep colonization intrapartum is penicillin G given at a loading dose of 5 million units, then 2.5 to 3 million units every 4 hours until delivery. Ampicillin is an acceptable alternative, 2 grams IV followed by 1 gram IV every 4 hours, though penicillin is preferred. We then stated that identification and history of the penicillin allergy is super important to flush out during prenatal care because 80 to 90 percent of people with a penicillin allergy aren't actually allergic even in those high-risk individuals penicillin allergy testing can be pursued and is safe in pregnancy so refer your patients if that penicillin allergy testing has not been performed, the allergy should be classified as low versus high risk, where you get a history from the patient. If the patient doesn't have things like a protic rash, hives, flushing, angioedema, respiratory disease, or anaphylaxis to penicillin, they should be considered low risk and be given a first-generation cephalosporin for prophylaxis. If they are high risk and there's been no allergy testing, then susceptibility testing of the group B strep culture should be performed, and these patients should be given clindamycin if the culture is susceptible to it, as well as vancomycin if the culture is not uh, susceptible to clindamycin. With respect to the time period that should be allowed for antibiotics to work, all antibiotics used for group B strep prophylaxis do take time to reduce the microbial load, and the optimal amount of time is four hours to allow for penicillin to work. That said, obstetric intervention should not be delayed solely to provide that four hours of antibiotic administration when obstetric intervention is indicated. So don't delay on AROM, FSE placement, PIT administration, etc. Um, other obstetric or labor interventions have not been shown to increase the incidence of group B strep, things like Foley balloon placement or mechanical cervical dilation, AROM itself, IUPCs or FSEs, and water immersion in the first stage. And the evidence on vaginal examination is limited, but vaginal exams should be performed when clinically indicated. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of our talk on group B strep. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you liked the episode today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, as well as on our Patreon if you want to give us some support www.patreon.com slash coffee. Find notes for this episode and every other episode on our website www.creogsovercoffee.com If you have a question for us or if you want to give us an episode suggestion or a correction for a previous episode go ahead and email us creogsovercoffee at gmail.com <laughs>